I do believe that there will be uh, opportunities in virtual reality that just shatter our preconceived notions of what reality is, that make us radically rethink reality itself. And I know re virtual reality is now in the trough of disillusionment after, after an excessively exuberant hype cycle. And a lot of people have really given up on it. Uh, I haven't. I just think it's a lot further off, probably at least 20, maybe 30 years out. I mean, who knows? You're just picking numbers when you're anticipating the timeline. But I do think we'll see a virtual reality that is so lifelike, that is nearly indistinguishable from reality. And when we see that, then viscerally, we are going to, we are really going to question reality. It's one thing to hear a simulation theory right now and go, yeah, 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 that's an interesting thought experiment. But we don't feel it as, as potentially true. At least I don't. I, mean, I don't think most people, I think that's pretty easily dismissed because it just feels so wrong. But when you go into a virtual reality that is so lifelike, you're going to really question which side's more real than the other. And I think that'll, I think that is a possibility, but I think we're going to have to have a, some kind of base life to go into the virtual reality. And I don't, I just have no preconceived notions on what that after life might be. So I'm kind of skeptical on whether there even is one, but I'm open to the idea. I'm, you have to always consider the possibility. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Hey guys, this episode is part of a two-part series. It's a fun one that we're doing with Mind and Machine host August Bradley. In the first part of the series, we talk human augmentation, genetics, biohacking, cyborgs, and more on his channel, mindandmachine.io. And for the second half, the part you're listening to now, we break down all of tech, from big tech to the exponential areas where we're headed in the future, to really have a big picture conversation on where the world is headed, where we see it, and where we want it to go, and how we can get it there. August is a futurist, a consultant, and the founder of the Mind and Machine podcast, which is a great one you guys should check out if you haven't already. He's also a board member and director of the AI and Machine Learning Society, chairman of Tech Art International Conference, and the moderator for the Los Angeles World Affairs Council. In today's episode, we discuss why neither August or I will let voice assistants into our homes, what happens next with VR and where it's headed, which technologies worry August the most, and why why Facebook and social media are so bad for all of us, and some solutions to boot, how Amazon is going to transform healthcare, the reason AI and automation will be net negative on jobs, why August isn't worried about AI consciousness or super intelligence, and the really interesting areas that August, if he was younger today, would jump into for careers, starting businesses, and much more, based off of the many conversations he and I have had. I know you guys love this because if you love the disruptors, August is an incredibly insightful guy with a ton of really interesting real world experience. And he's talked to some of the smartest folks in the industry. Stay tuned, enjoy this. And when you do hop over to Mind the Machine, subscribe there as well. And make sure you leave us a big fat five-star review on iTunes. If you're listening on YouTube, make sure you hit that subscribe button and ding that bell in the top right corner so that you get notified when we post new videos. And of course, if you prefer podcasts, we're on all major podcasting platforms. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, disruptors.fm slash iTunes, and you can go through the gamut, so to speak, by going to disruptors.fm. We got all the links there, and we'd enjoy having you guys along for the ride. And now, without further ado, I give you August Bradley. As you can probably tell, 
I'm pretty big on health, longevity, and human optimization. That's why I'm pumped to tell you about our special 10% off offer from Onnit, the brainchild of UFC's Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus for elite performers. They're running a Willy Wonka style prize giveaway where everybody gets a golden ticket. Everybody wins on every order of Alpha Brain, a super nootropic stack that they sent me. I love it with my morning coffee and it comes with the potential to win an all expenses paid grand prize round trip for two to Onnit's hardcore headquarters in Austin, Texas, $1,000 store credit, $500 cash and more. Plus again, every bottle of Alpha Brain comes with a special bonus from the Onnit team. Just visit disruptors.fm alpha to save 10% off alpha brain or anything else from their awesome store. Again, disruptors.fm slash on it if you want hardcore subs to live a high performance life. Today's episode is brought to you guys by my 15-step guide to scalable, Series A-worthy growth and marketing. If you're building a startup aiming for a billion-dollar outcome or a solopreneur looking for a sustainable six, seven, or eight-figure business, get my free guide, which you can grab at mattward.io free, which walks you through the best, most proven tactics to acquire and retain customers, applicable for freelancers up to Fortune 500. If you want to grab that, plus bonus hacks and tips to build your business and more, visit mattward.io slash free. And if you need help or ever want to grow your business faster, I coach a handful of hardcore winners building businesses I believe in. You can reach out right on the site, mattward.io for more. And now let's get on with the episode. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. August, give me a quick rundown. What's your 30,000 foot view of who the heck you are? Wow, that's quite a perspective. Um, but I am a, first and foremost, just a really curious person. I have one of those minds, I, much like yours, I, I can tell, where I get a little thread of information and I just want to know more. And when you look at the kind of topics that we look at, it's just endless what you can learn and discover. So I'm a curious person and that drives pretty much everything I do. Day job is I do consulting and a lot of automation and efficiency, consulting with leading edge companies. But my passion project has been Mind and Machine, and uh, that has been the avenue through which I most passionately explore my curiosities. So like you, I talk with fascinating people and just learn so much from the most from people just pushing the boundaries on in every conceivable direction. So that is what fires me up every day, both working with clients who are also pushing boundaries, but really looking at the outer end end of human potential uh, across all these different fields just fires me up every morning. And that's what, what I am motivated most by. Why human potential? Well, I mean, we all want to get the most out of our, you know, our time here on earth. And uh, who knows what, what, if anything comes after that. But what we know is, what we ha- is that we have this really unique and incredible and extraordinary opportunity right now here. And I mean, if you think about it, the astronomical odds of us even being alive here is just mind-blowing. So not to take the absolute most advantage of that is just a waste. So I am committed, like, you know, like a lot of us, in enhancing ourselves as much as possible to achieve the goals that we've set out for ourselves. But also, I'm fascinated by what future generations will be capable of and the, the limits that they'll shatter and just the, the mind-blowing potential of what humans will ultimately be capable of just really fires me up. I think it's interesting that you brought up, we don't know what happens next. I know I read an Ian Banks book, and it was semi-dystopian in that there, were, there was essentially a clash, a war between post-human civilizations, some of which believed you should create a virtual reality hell, and some of which you cr- believed you should just have virtual reality. And it was as a way to incentivize people to live better in the here and now. And do you think we'll move towards something like that as 
we have the ability to do that. You die and get uploaded into something else. I don't know about uh, in terms of a post-life or in terms of transforming what we perceive as reality in this life. This was a post-life, but I don't suppose you had to be dead to get into it. So it's kind of one and the okay. same. Yeah, I, I'm more, I'm more skeptical about the post-life scenarios. Um, I mean, obviously, there's just no way of knowing, you know, given the available information. Uh, I do believe that there will be uh, opportunities in virtual reality that just shatter our preconceived notions of what reality is that make us radically rethink reality itself. And I know re virtual reality is now in the trough of disillusionment after after an excessively exuberant hype cycle. And a lot of people have really given up on it. Uh, I haven't. I just think it's a lot further off, probably at least 20, maybe 30 years out. I mean, who knows? You're just picking numbers when you're anticipating the timeline. But I do think we'll see a virtual reality that is so lifelike, that is nearly indistinguishable from reality. And when we see that, then viscerally, we are going to, we are really going to question reality. It's one thing to hear a simulation theory right now and go, yeah, 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 that's an interesting thought experiment. But we don't feel it as, as potentially true. At least I don't. I, I don't think most people, I think that's pretty easily dismissed because it just feels so wrong. But when you go into a virtual reality that is so lifelike, you're going to really question which side's more real than the other. And I think that'll, I think that is a possibility, but I think we're going to have to have a, some kind of base life to go into the virtual reality. And I don't, I just have no preconceived notions on what that after life might be. So I'm kind of skeptical on whether there even is one, but I'm open to the idea. I'm, you have to always consider the possibility. Yeah. That's what marks the difference between science and well, belief. I, uh, we had a really interesting episode with Don Hoffman. He actually believes that all of reality that we see isn't a simulation, but it's a simplification of a much bigger reality. Because if you see too much detail, you get stuck in the weeds. If you see too little detail, you die. So he, be he believes that basically what we're seeing is not the world as it is. And it's, uh, it's, it's a really interesting, really popular episode. So if you guys haven't checked that out, Go to disruptors.fm, check out Don Hoff. Yeah, but I, funny, I think the timing, we actually have an episode with Don coming out in about a week week or so. Oh, so you do? Yeah. We're going to be building on some of those ideas. The argument against reality. It's a, it's, exactly. it's a fascinating thing. I don't totally agree with him, but I do think there's definitely something there. But what's powerful, think I think, about his thinking, though, is that he just shatters the default assumption that virtually everybody has. And the approach of discarding our preconceived notions, I think, is a powerful starting place. And I think he's really good at starting a conversation beyond our base assumptions. Yeah, he basically hits you with psychedelics, but on the math side of things, as opposed to the drug side of things, it's right. interesting to examine reality in a different way. Do you think we will get to that point where we have VR that is so indistinguishable? I mean, at that point, will we have a splintering of society, people that want to live in VR, people that don't? People that are locked in jail, that, that we just pop them in that because it's cheaper and easier. Right. Well, I guess you have to, we have to define when I say virtually uh, or, uh, or nearly indistinguishable. I think it will, I can't imagine a time where it's literally not distinguishable. I mean, that's when you talk hundreds of years out, it's impossible to speculate. But in the foreseeable future, no. But I think it will become so close. I don't know how much you've done with VR, but it's, the few, the very few really good experiences, you feel it viscerally. And this is, in the current iterations are pretty crude. First of all, it's only sight and sound, and the sight is very pixelated still. And I don't, I, we just need more rendering power. We need the ability to do foveon rendering where it's high resolution just in the direction you look. And 
it's it's quite a ways away. Even the people who really believe it tend to, I think they overestimate what's going to happen quickly. I just think it's 20, 30 years before it really gets compelling enough. But I do think you're going to see people who spend the majority of their workday in VR, a lot of people, like a, large portions of the population, because it'll be so productive in terms of what can be crafted as a work environment, and it'll eliminate your need to be anywhere. Uh, for certain types of work. And you can, you know, you can create environments where the tools are more readily available. And that, and much like Don talks about, where you have an interface that facilitates, you know, the primary objective, in that case, survival, but in this case, the work objectives. So you can actually craft an environment designed just to get the job done more efficiently and more effectively, and to sort of immerse yourself in it. Uh, So I think it will be close enough that you will viscerally feel it as real. And that your How mind close will do you have to get, though? So let, let's play devil's advocate. How many kids sit on their computer or they play video games and you go for eight hours and you have no idea where in God's name the time went? I know I did a VR experience in Zurich and it was heads up goggles. You had a vest, you had gloves and you had um, boots. And there was this thing. We went up in an elevator and suddenly we were on the second or third floor. And I had to walk across the top of Roman columns and I'm scared mm-hmm. of heights and I was shitting myself. And it didn't look anything real. I looked like a Halo trooper from some video game. It certainly wasn't high def resolution. None of that mattered. Mm -hmm. The only thing that mattered is you associating yourself with whatever that thing was and feeling like you were there. So do we have to get to that? Or is as long as we have lag free interactions, is that enough? You don't have to get all the way there to have it be very a very compelling experience. And there are are already very compelling experiences. Uh, I don't think they're consistently a, a large volume of them out there, but there are some. Like the best ones are really powerful, viscerally, like I said. And yeah, the, the old trick of the height scare in VR is real. You feel it. I've seen people doing the, there's an experience where you, you're rock climbing, and I've seen people like lunge for a reach that's, you know, j- just it requires a physical lunge in the VR environment. And these people will do that lunge completely forgetting that they're in a virtual environment and they will fall on their face without the instinctive reflex of putting their arms up to break their fall because their mind is in the virtual space. You know, that reflex is not a conscious decision. It's an instinctive decision. So it's actually fooled the subconscious, you know, innate reflexes that we have. So yeah, you're right. It doesn't need to be all the way there. But I'm talking about the point where you're questioning reality. And I think we need to be a lot closer. I don't think you have to be all the way there, but I think you have to be a lot closer to the point where large groups of the population really question the nature of reality on a really visceral level. I think it's, I don't think we're anywhere close to that. Do you think that's doable on a wearable basis or will this be a plug-in, we're going to hook it into your brain type deal or some type of inception? Probably some kind of connection to the neural neural pathways because it has to be more than just sight and sound and you know the wearing exoskeletons and gloves and treadmills is pretty crude so i'm skeptical that will really get us there but i think once we really are tapping into like internal neural pathways then there's no limit on what you can do in terms of tricking your senses i feel like a treadmill's crude i did it in the middle of a empty warehouse and if you had haptics then some of the stuff i know i've seen some really interesting folks working on creating sixth senses mm. where you have, for instance, a blind person seeing they're wearing a vest and on their vest, it has little haptic sensors that are doing little shocks, primarily on the back and torso because you have lots of space, lots of nerves, right. and there's not much going on. But you can you can train blind people to see by 
having different patterns zap across their body. And suddenly those type of things become real. It's interesting as we start to explore additional senses, so to speak. Well, it is fascinating how the mind can close the gap with what even with what's available now. And to your point, it feels super real in many cases because your mind is really good at extrapolating a, a, you know, a small subset of sensory impulses into the full-blown immersive sensation. And you, you get your mind thinking in that right direction, just like a good storyteller. But when you start bringing electronic haptics into it, you have like the, the vest that pulsates and gloves that have sensations that can actually simulate heat and cold very precisely. And, you know, some external actual analog sensory triggers as well. It is powerful. Yeah. And that's just with today's relatively crude technology, although it's far better than it was in the 90s. Every generation, we get a lot closer to that goal of total immersion. But it will have to be a lot more than just sight and sound. You're going to have to have some tactile haptic feedback as well to facilitate that full acceptance of this as another reality. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't have feeling in your fingertips, you can't write. Yeah. You're just even trying to pick up a pen and write, it doesn't work. Right. Because, so much of what, yeah, what we, what we pick up is not, you know, we're focused on someone's words, but we're picking up so much more from the environment, from the body language, from, you know, the, you know computers are, uh, computer scientists are working hard at natural language interfaces because that communicates so much more than the thing we're mentally focused on, uh, even though our mind is focused more on one spot, we're just collecting from a wide range of senses. Speaking of collecting from a wide range, what technology or trend are you most excited about and why? Well, on a personal level, I'm most excited about space exploration. Like that's the thing that captures my imagination more than anything. And it may not be the most practical, uh, you know, application of time or energy right now, but it is the thing. Like, ever since I was, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of Carl Sagan's and he started that that love for what what's beyond the potential of what's out there beyond the known of human human boundaries and so it, when i think about you know what's possible in biotech what's possible in vr i you know it all started with what's possible in, you know beyond the known boundaries of space and you know when you start thinking about the possibilities obviously i'm a, a huge science fiction fan as i know you are too and that sparks a lot of the the dreaming and, and wonder uh, but space gets me most excited but I think there are things more practical. You know, I think in a shorter term time span, I think the potential to radically transform healthcare in terms of AI and machine learning, catching things that nobody ever would have caught in terms of diagnosis is going to just alleviate so much unnecessary human suffering. So I think that's radically transformative in a closer time frame. I think food sciences is going to very quickly enhance, you know, it's going to re reduce uh, the the environmental demands of our food industry. And more interestingly, we're going to be able to really design foods that are super healthy for us, that are more efficient and more capable of giving us things we need. The problem is we're in an environment, a capitalistic environment, which I am very much supportive of, but the incentive systems in that environment motivate development of foods, not for the purpose of health optimization, but rather for profit optimization, which is more about shelf life and, and uh, things that make it easier to produce and transport and sell. But I don't see any reason why we can't apply those same technologies ultimately to making healthier foods and thing and food products that are healthier for the environment. So excited about that. I could talk about in pretty much any direction. I'm excited about so many different things, but those are a few right there. So space, what would it take for you to take a free ticket? Well, ironically enough, uh, even though I am super curious and passionate about what's out there, I am not inclined to be a 
an early adopter in terms of spaceflight. I just, God, that, that is some high-risk activity right there. And while I have huge respect and admiration for astronauts and people who do that, even civilians who will be the first to go, I will definitely not be one of the early ticket buyers. Um, like a, Part of my the passion I have for these things is the passion for life, right? If you're curious and you just want to be learning, you've got to, you've got to stay healthy and alive. Build the cap. Yeah. <laughs> Mission number one. <laughs> so um, it would take a lot to get me to buy a ticket. It would have to be a well-developed, well-established routine activity. Now I could see I mean, that's, I mean, that's in terms of like going to Mars, right? That, that just seems so speculative. I could see settlements on the moon being well-established. And if it's a regular commercial activity and there are bases, and this has been done a lot, yeah, I think that'd be, that'd be awesome. But definitely not an early adopter in terms of actual space travel. But there's so much we can do in terms of exploration of outer space that doesn't require even any humans going there. I mean, robotics We'll be able to to do so much in space in terms of learning and discovering. We're already doing that, and it, and we've just scratched the surface of what robots and sensors are capable capable of. So we're going to be expanding that technology and shooting all of that in space much further than humans will be able to go. It's, you know, as soon as we get humans out to the moon, we'll have robotic tools far far further than that. And we get to to Mars, it'll be that much further that we'll be sending probes and sensors. So I'm more interested in the learning what we can discover than physically experiencing. Although ultimately we can send these robotic sensors out there and create VR and AR experiences that give us a taste of what it's like out there. So I think combining the technologies but keeping us safe is the optimal path. You could also kind of call that teasing. Here's what you can see but never quite touch. That's, um, we'll see Again, you gotta stay alive if you're gonna enjoy it, so. I know, it's funny. You see so much sci-fi and they've got all these bases on all of these planets. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it doesn't really make sense to make a base on a planet because you're getting out of gravity just to go back into it. And a lot of times it doesn't make sense to send a human unless you're just going from an ego sense. A right. robot could probably do the job better. Yeah, I, th well, I think bases will be for mining and extraction, you know, commercial resource collection, and then for bases to then send things off further beyond that. So I think the missions to Mars will use in some capacity bases on the moon, for example. Yeah, it makes, I mean, it makes sense. What I meant is more put the base in space and then you oh. kind of... Right. Okay. So we get into all, mega. All, we get into Isaac Arthur's mega structures, and those are yeah, mind blowing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, there's so many. There's so many interesting ways to do it, and they would probably be cheaper, easier, and safer to do it if you left it in space. For sure. But that's it, uh, yeah. No. Whole we, I, no. I, I dove deep into that with our our mutual friend Isaac Arthur in our mega structures episode, and in a lot of cases, it's in many ways he makes the point that it's easier to build an environment hospitable to humans than to adapt a planet or a moon to be hospitable to humans. So I think you're right. I think that is very likely to be uh, the path we go. Although if you're launching missiles off of it or launching spacecraft off of it, you might need something more solid than what we're currently capable in, of building in terms of a, an independent structure. So that can change. You probably, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't need to do anything. You could probably just give it a little kick, gets away from you, and then let you launch. Float. Yeah, let speed. It, whatever floats your boat. And, yeah, but then you, turn, you, then you kick off once you're already in space. Fair enough. Yeah, you need some type of um, um, thrusterless drive, mm -hmm. uh, electromagnetic drive, etc. It's interesting. Space is one of those ones. What I think, what I like is I, I typically get up pretty early, at least on, on a normal person perspective. Usually leave in by around 6.37 to head to the Starbucks office, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But it's nice when it's dark out and you can look up in the night sky and it's a clear one and you see all those stars and it's like, damn. Yeah. And I would encourage, I would encourage everyone out there 
to go have your oh damn moment. Just go out and look up into the stars and you get that sense of wonder and possibility. That's something that we miss on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, the more the more you start looking, the more of those moments you're going to have. It just takes some curiosity and a, just a small effort to look in the, into a direction that's totally unknown to generate those moments of wow, what what could possibly be out there? And you start extrapolating and you start learning the more you learn about anything, the more interesting it becomes. And uh, when you start looking beyond the bounds of human knowledge, it just it gets you excited in so many ways. Totally agree, Matt. It does. And with healthcare, I'm excited. Amazon's starting to hop in there. Maybe we can fix the U.S. system a little bit by bringing some type of efficiency to it. Yes, I actually saw an article today that Facebook is is doing developing things for healthcare. Yeah, but no one's gonna trust. No one's gonna trust Zuckerberg. Which is for about God's to say, sakes, guys, don't make that mistake. Exactly where it's about to go. It's yeah. I mean, of all companies, I think they have lost the trust, the public trust. Yet they have not yeah, lost wanna, the public they activity. These, they want to put these devices in your home to watch you. Zuckerberg's got his camera covered. They want to do dating. Good Lord. I yeah. don't want to give Facebook any type of information. Well, I won't put an, an Amazon listening device in my home, let alone a Facebook. Oh, yeah. I, 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 wouldn't put any, I wouldn't put any of them personally because I don't trust any of them. And they're all incentivized right. to lie right now. I'll collect what they can and apologize later because it's not like they're going to have to pay for it. Right. I, yeah, I have the same all... impulse. I do have one in my office and it's more so I have something to test with, but not, not in my home. No. Yeah, I understand that. So we talked about the one side of the sword, but every technology is a double-edged sword. What technologies or trends are you most worried about and why? Let's play scare tactics. Well, it's interesting. A lot of the technologies that I'm most excited about because they have such radically transformative transformative potential, I'm also the most fearful of because that radically transformative potential, you know, can do an equal or more amount of harm. But if you want to, you know, cut to the chase, the things in the reasonably near future that I'm most concerned about is the incredible vulnerability of our urban infrastructures. We're becoming, we're already so dependent on AI processes and algorithms to run things for us, which is great because it makes it easier. It makes it less expensive. It makes it, it reduces errors. I mean, it's good in so many ways, but the complexity of running an electrical grid, a uh, waste removal system, traffic systems is already very complex and it's getting so much more complex that we're becoming completely dependent on these systems. Even our work days are so dependent on phones and the internet. Can you imagine going to work for any extended amount of time without the internet? I'd be shut down. Could you imagine going to a grocery store? No, I can't. I can't imagine doing anything. (laughs) Uh, And so it is is scary. These grids are so vulnerable to attack, first and foremost, but even just internal errors and collapses on their own. And while on a day-to-day basis, they remove errors, when an error happens, it has the potential to be catastrophic. You know, people's lives are dependent on delivery systems now. And these delivery systems run by algorithms. And it's not that these systems are going to turn on us. There's no killer AI. There's no, you know, evil AI mind. But the complexity is so vast, no human being can comprehend it and wrap their mind around it and operate it. So we've we've let these systems take over. But I don't think there are a lot of safety and backup systems in place should something have a catastrophic failure. And that makes them the most obvious targets for bad actors. And given that I don't think there are many bad actors in society that would do such a thing, it only takes one. So I think there's an incredible vulnerability to these huge infrastructure systems being run by algorithms. uh, And that's dangerous. Uh, Privacy is only going to get worse. It's already bad, the privacy exposure. But, you know, if you think it's bad now, wait till every device 
is a smart device and everything is connected to the cloud and the internet and every action and every like the level of of again dependency but also the level of data collection is bad as bad as and extreme as it is now it's going to be radically more so in 10 15 20 years so you know everything you take out of the refrigerator is going to be measured like every little thing and so the privacy thing just gets worse i'm also fascinated here's another good and bad i'm fascinated with brain machine interfaces right? There's so much you can do. Language is such a limiting factor in expressing ourselves. It's slow, it's cumbersome, it's imprecise. There's so much we can do with, with other forms of, you know, connectivity in terms, and also just things that we're not even conscious of. We can learn about ourselves so much with machines monitoring in deeper ways. But my God, think about the, the privacy violation when your mind is connected to a machine, which is connected to the cloud. It's, I mean, again, double-edged sword. Sorry, August, you were having depressive thoughts last night. We're going to increase your premium by $4.7 today. But if I was really having depressive thoughts, say someone's suicidal to take it to an extreme, that could be really helpful. I mean, that could save someone's life. But yeah, at what trade-off? It, de- it depends on how, how, the, how the information's used and especially how the information and businesses are regulated. Because there are going to be things a la climate change, a la health and privacy, where it's not, they're going to be the collective action problems of our future. And to solve for that, when we have a thousand, a million times more data, when your smart car is driving you around and communicating everywhere that you're going, oh, look, this guy came to a, he came to the crime scene and stopped for a second. Was he looking at it or was he the guy that just shot him in the head? Right. It's going to be, it's going to be super interesting as we move towards what feels like an inevitable minority report. And inevitably, I think with that comes ratings. Uh, not that they're going to be publicly out there like in the uh, Black Mirror episode, but I think it will be hard tr- for governments, for corporations to resist. And we already do it, of course, with credit reports, but rating people based on their behavior. And when you have this much monitoring of people's behavior, you can get a pretty precise rating for whatever it is you want to evaluate someone for. And I don't know, I just that feels wrong and invasive to me. But... I don't think there's any avoiding it when the information is there and the use of such a tool is so valuable for certain objectives. I don't know how you get governments and corporations not to do that. I mean, we, we know companies already do that, but the scale and precision with which they'll be able to do it will just be so extreme that I think there are le- very legitimate concerns and dangers surrounding that. Especially because it's easier to play offense than it is to play defense. Absolutely. So it's yeah. not like you can protect your own data. Right. And you're, you're talking about regulations protecting people, but the reg- regulations lag, right? They're responsive to extreme, to moves that feel out of what should be right. But there's no, there are no laws stopping them, at least for a long time. And then, they, then many of them become normalized, right? So a lot of them just become part of, oh, yeah, well, of course that happens. Things that we do now would have been shocking 40, 30, 20 years ago in terms of what, privacy violations. What? What scares me the most is the 9-11 effect of every single little thing that happens. Governments, especially the U.S. government, seizes any type of power they can have. When would taking off your shoes be considered normal? When would people rubbing devices mm-hmm. all over you be considered normal? When would confiscating cell phones and right. putting malware on them be considered normal? Well, it's Homeland Security, and that's just the status quo. Right. But, but and I agree, I completely agree with you that that's, those excuses are exploited. But at the same time, the power of one individual who wants to do harm is 
is already extreme and it's going to be so much more extreme. How do you stop that? I mean, you kill everyone because that's really the only way you stop it. Because think about it. Every incident that happens will be a slightly further encroachment on a slippery slope that leads one direction. Mm -hmm. How do you stop that one thing? Well, you create the perfect utopia. What's that? What's the metaphor? What's a utopia also known as a dystopia? Because there's no difference. They've done studies where mm. they give people options between today's world and the, they, they kind of make it a little bit less obvious, but basically several different utopias, all the ones they could come up with in today's world. And inevitably, almost everyone chooses today's world because a utopia is essentially just a dystopia. Well, you look at some of the great literary fiction from A Brave New World to Infinite Jest, and they paint that same picture. The thing that is so alluring to us creates, we we get it, and that creates the dystopia consistently. Yeah, because you take the challenge out of the life. And that's why Terminator had the world not too easy, and still it fell. You take the life out of the life. Yeah, you take the life out of living. It's It's a curious question to ponder. Absolutely. But one that is important to ponder, because when we get new things that seem just awesome and remarkable, amazing new forms of entertainment or amazing new conveniences or luxuries. We are, I mean, we have not been good at thinking about what the, the other side, what the other side of that coin might be. And I think now that we see the power of these technologies, we, and we've been burned enough times, I think we need to start thinking more carefully when we see something that's appealing, what are we trading for? What's the, what's the cost? Because when, you know, when Facebook and these social medias came out, they seemed all upside. It didn't seem like they'd be problematic. I think the, the founders were, were caught off guard in many ways. I don't think they expected them to, to do the harm they've done in terms of, you know, election meddling and these kinds of things. It just We just didn't think about it. But we've been burned enough times. I don't think going forward, there are any excuses to uh, not anticipate flip sides of things that seem very shiny and alluring up front. I would say that's true and false because you're never going to get a founder to try to build something if they think they might be destroying the world in the process. People that are building something are inherently optimistic. Otherwise, they're not willing to go through the shithole of building it. Right. And they're, but what are they optimistic about? Is it the financial return or is it really about improving the world? And there's probably a mix and it will vary. The ratio will vary from person to person. Uh, but I think as consumers, like those things only succeed if we buy them, if we choose to make them a part of our lives. So I, you know, there's a responsibility for the founders, but there's also a responsibility for us, the consumers. And we need to think about these things and have more substantive discussions about these types of transformations earlier in their release cycle. How do we do that when people are so busy with themselves, not to mention Facebook and Netflix? It's both of which are kind really of hard. both of which are kind of like the lighting up of today. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, it's really hard. It's hard. You know, we're super busy, and there's also so many of these things, right? There, there's so many of them, and that's the nature of a shiny and alluring thing is that it's shiny and alluring. So you want it, you want to try it. It's people are talking about it. You want to be in the conversation. There's a social currency to being to be using the thing that everybody's talking about to be in that, especially when the thing itself is a discussion platform. You know, it's hard not to, but I think we need to think very deliberately about what we're willing to put out there information-wise, how we're willing to spend our time. And that's, and it all starts with thinking about what are our goals in life? Like, what do each of us individually want to achieve? Do we want to build something meaningful? Do we want to foster relationships? Or do we want to be, you know, accumulating likes and followers? So, do you think most people are thinking at that level, though? No. I would say I, a lot of people, if you're struggling to get by, you're probably not thinking at that level. If you're short on cash, your IQ is 10 points lower than it would be if you were doing okay. And if you're stressed, short on sleep, not liking your job, how often do you get the chance to escape that and 
come to the the thought processes of, is this actually what I want or what do I want? I feel like a lot of people, unfortunately, I feel like everyone at times, but a lot of people sometimes fall into the trap of, well, now I brush my teeth and after I brush my teeth, I spit in the sink. And after I spit in the sink, I take my nightly pee. And people get stuck in this routine that they don't question because the routine is what gets them through the day. Right. And I'm super sympathetic to that. And the vast majority of people are in that circumstance. So there are a number of things. One is, I'm not, you know, I'm not blaming anyone who does that. In fact, I do that all the time. All of us do. But if we're going to anticipate problems in our society and things that are negative influences on our lives, we have to make the effort. So it's... Many people won't. I'm just saying if you want to be, be on top of technology instead of having technology on top of you, then you need to make the effort. It's just a decision each person needs to make. And yeah, and there's many people in circumstances that make that decision and that make that practice and even awareness of the need to do that much more difficult. I mean, the people who listen to our shows tend to be people who have a lot more choices in life and have achieved a certain level of both luxury and a luxury in terms of the ability to spend time contemplating elevated ideas and possibilities in the future, right? That's a luxury that a lot of people don't have. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. But at the same time, we as a society and each of us as individuals have to make an effort if we're going to get the best possible outcome. I don't think the default outcome tends to be the best outcome, especially with these new technologies. I think we can achieve really good outcomes if we're very deliberate and intentional about it. If we, def- if we know what we want out of life, both individually and as, as groups, and then we evaluate the potential and the way you use it against those goals. If you don't, I think you get certainly a subpar outcome, but in many cases, a negative outcome. Right. Most people aren't going to do that. Uh, although there's nothing wrong with encouraging people to do that and to try to do it yourself. So we do what we can, you know, individually and as collectives. I want a bold contrarian 10-year prediction, something you believe that most around you wouldn't. I already gave you one bold contrarian prediction with the VR. VR is pretty down right now. But uh, I don't think, think that's 10, con- I don't think that's 10 the, years. Yeah. I don't think that's 10 years. Um, like the, I think that I have a, this is sort of a, a take on AI consciousness and I think this is an early precursor, which is why I think it's contrarian, because I think most people suspect or are skeptical of this idea of conscious AI. But I think within a 10-year period, we're going to start to see AIs putting together these digital footprints that we have. And again, these digital footprints are already significant. And by that, I mean, you know, maps tracking where we go, everything we put online, credit card transactions tracked, you know, literally every interaction that's captured in some digital form, that's going to radically increase. And I think within a 10-year period, the footprint will be so dense and rich from a data extraction standpoint that machine learning and AIs are going to be able to animate that and uh, for, in, in a number of different ways and basically create digital twins. But I think one of the most interesting applications of that will be when you have someone who's passed away, you can create an avatar of that person based on their past behaviors, in, including biometrics. You know, what made their heart rate speed up? You know, what kinds of things were they passionate and most alive about. And you can animate, you will be able to within 10 years start to animate AIs or avatars through AI technology using all this patterns from a person's life, all this uh, pattern data and create an animated version of that person that you can, others can interact with. And I think it'll be super powerful and really, really creepy. And it'll scare, some people won't want anything to do with that. And some people are so hungry for some connection to that person who passed on that it will be irresistible and become a part of their lives. Of course, that goes beyond people who have passed away. It's going to be viable entirely for living people. And you're going to start to have digital twins out there. 
And these digital twins initially will be designed to do things for you, to work on your behalf. But over time, there's the potential for them to take on their own objectives and then perhaps become uh, rivals in some sort. Uh, I've, I started thinking down these lines in a conversation with Grace Scott, uh, a futurist, and I've really extrapolated it in a lot of directions. I think in 10 years, this can start to become a viable thing. And of course, it'll only take on more power beyond that. But it's really the, the early forms of a kind of consciousness in machines. And while a lot, it will, at least it will seem like consciousness. And while the machine may not be conscious, and, and I don't think it actually will be, your perception of machines with consciousness will just take on a whole nother level. Like we were talking about VR becoming this visceral questioning of reality. I think the same will be happening there in terms of machine consciousness and people starting to think of machines as conscious. I would have two things to add. A, it'll be super dangerous when we start doing that with people that die because life is nothing without death. If you don't have the grieving, then you're not actually getting over it. And then on the flip side of things, I think we will attribute consciousness much earlier than a necessary feels or looks like consciousness. People are already, I mean, they're already petting robot dogs. They're already making sure that they don't mess with the Roomba. I think we're going to get to a situation where it it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck. We're probably going to assume it's a duck. And that's going to be problematic because we don't actually know if it thinks about itself or it feels like a duck. And I think the same thing will happen with humans. So the problem becomes not whether or not it's conscious, it's whether or not it's conscious, we'll assume it's conscious. So mm-hmm. how will we treat it? Right. If we don't if we don't treat it with rights, that's slavery, regardless of what it feels. And if we do treat it with rights, and this is some type of transition, we go from having free workers, i.e. slaves, to not having slaves and the economy crashes. And what so does it, it say about it creates, us if we treat it inhumanly, yet we perceive it as being conscious? Oh, it, it that says the Westworld thing that we're we're all down to rape and pillage. It's all good. As long as we come out on top, that doesn't say good things. And I know I've heard people, I've heard parents, I've heard other people on the podcast say some of the things they hear their, uh, some of the things they hear their kids say to their phones or to robots, et cetera. It's like, good God, did that just come out of his mouth? (laughs) And I think it does create a weird perverse incentive, especially as we have those digital twins and those digital twins get into the digital oldest business in history prostitution. Which is an, if you have the twin, it's an inevitable direction. Although I wasn't necessarily thinking of a a life, a form. I was thinking of still screen interfaces. But ultimately, you get to the Black Mirror episode where you have an Android-like form attached to the, the AI behavior. And that gets even freakier. But to your first point on it being dangerous, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it'll be dangerous to our psyche and to our psychological you know, you know, how we think about ourselves in the world. But that I don't see that stopping it. I don't see that as a deterrent. That's the kind of, and especially, it's not an obvious danger up front to most people. I think you're unusually we think forward-thinking. Enough. We but think they, we're strong enough to avoid it, but we yeah, won't be. It'll only be in retrospect that we see the harm. And by then, it'll be too late in many cases. It will be. And if we're all in love with robots, there's our Fermi paradox right there. No one's making babies. Or maybe they're going straight to IVF. But that's our other conversation. If you guys didn't check it out yet, make sure you hop over to mindandmachine.io. I would say you're kind of right. But the fact that you split the camps, the big problem I see is that most people who are technologically in the weeds are very willing to say that this is not a problem. But that also comes into question of the incentive problem. Are people who are researching something able to even understand or Think about the fact that I may be creating the, some, the thing that's going to kill, wipe out, ruin all of us. 
And I would argue no, because their jobs are against it. Their families are against it. Everything's against it. Your entire sense of identity. Do you think that the, do you think that when Pepsi was selling diabetes to kids, that the, that the executives of Pepsi thought they were terrible people? No, I think, but, but I think they it's still totally sold different. tons. I think it's totally different because if you're actually building it and you know what AI is and what it does now, it is not plausible in any foreseeable future that it will catch and exceed human intelligence. Now, it, it may in some regards, certainly will in narrow sense, it has done that a long time ago, but it's if the thing that they're working on is not what we consider general intelligence, and certainly not human level general intelligence. And they don't see an extrapolation to that that's realistic. So I don't think- I would, Yeah, yeah, I would say before they invented the atomic bomb the day before, they said it was impossible. But no, it was impossible, but they knew if they did it, what it would be. I mean, it always would be that thing. And the reason why we don't understand is because we don't understand neuroscience well enough. But if we don't understand something, we're working in a general, I will, I'll agree that if we work with traditional machine learning models, we're not going to get from here to there by increasing the power. It doesn't work that way. But when you look at nature, when you look at systems, the stepwise functions don't happen from an increase in power. They happen from a change in paradigm. What happens when you have a race where it is an all hands on deck, winner take all race? Do people push the envelope and not have necessary restrictions in place? There's no reason why a team has to take the same approach that other teams are taking. I think that it's one of those situations where there's no reason not to contemplate the downsides because oh, of we've effed up enough enough things without contemplating the downsides. I think the <laughs> philosopher side of things is really important because the the hardcore tech people are traditionally not interfacing enough with the neuroscience and philosophy people to have that more Right, but they're not in the same conversation. Right, but they're not doing that. There are two separate conversations, it seems. Um, but also, you, to, have, yeah. to have the winner-take-all danger scenario, you don't have to get anywhere close to general intelligence, general artificial intelligence. That's going to happen regardless. I agree with that completely. But that's not the same as this runaway scenario of AGI catching us and then immediately surpassing us because it's building itself from then on out. Uh, I mean, that's possible. I'm open to the possibility. I'm just skeptical of it. But that's the conversation being done about that is no way connected in any way to the conversation of what's actually happening in machine learning right now. So, and, and I don't think there's, while models are being used from neuroscience to build AI and machine learning right now, they're really crude and they're really, I mean, there's so much more mechanical. Again, we don't even fully understand neuroscience. Uh, and even what we do understand, it's it's a very crude analogy to it. And I just think it is pure sci-fi speculation at this point, which doesn't mean it can't happen, but that's the level of leap you have to take to connect the two. And I just don't think, I think one is very grounded and reality-based in what's being done today. And the other is speculation on a fantasy level. Now, I think it's a, I think the conversations are fascinating and worth having. And I think the real benefit of them is what we learn about ourselves from the conversations about, um, you know, AGI level artificial intelligence. I think they're important and valuable because they reflect on ourselves, right? They, if a machine is that powerful, then th- that it's human level intelligence, everything we learn about its behavior, we're learning about ourselves as well. So I think in like science fiction is often a way to put a mirror on ourselves that lets us talk about it without being as direct. So we perhaps we can be more honest. The same thing is happening with the more philosophical AGI conversation. I would agree with most of that. I would say typically when I see an entire group of people all say that something is not possible and not something worth worrying about, that makes me scratch my head a little bit. Mm. 
And the fact that that's what you see with most artificial intelligence researchers who are researching in the field. And that's the opposite of what you see for most artificial intelligence researchers who are focused on um, safety and containment. It seems that when people get into the into the weeds of what could go wrong, there's enough to convince them there that that's worth focusing on versus the people sure. just trying to build it. But I don't see them saying it can't ever happen. I just see them saying, like, be, more bewildered. They're more bewildered. Over. What's that? I see almost all of them saying it can't happen or saying, yeah, but not in our lifetime. This is not saying it's Although a, that's not a good reason. Lifetime. Yeah, no, they have they have horrible reasons. I think they're, they're generally bewildered, though. I'm sorry. I think I think they're generally bewildered at the question. It just seems so unrelated to the actual thing they're doing that they're just confused that this is a, a serious conversation. But that's because they're scientists and idiot savants. So they're focused on one thing and one thing only. If you look at technology, almost all technologies that were um, black swan events, so sure. to speak, you never that the dude who invented the radio wanted us to be able to listen to Jesus music and evangelicals. Right. And that was and now today we have Spotify and today we have podcasts and today sure. we have everything that we have. I don't think that I get that. I don't know. No, I mean, I, I think I'm open to the possibility. I mean, nobody can say it can't happen. Uh, and, you know, when you're looking out 100, 200, 300 years, I mean, you can't even you can't even have a conversation. That's so speculative at the rate things are changing. So I'm looking at, you know, up to a, say, 50 year time window. And in that time window, it just doesn't seem plausible. Beyond that, you, it, I mean, if you look at what happened in the past 100 years and then you think of an ex, you know, extrapolate that on an exponential curve the next hundred years, there's just no way to have any serious conversation on one, two, three hundred years out. So so I tend not to. You can't even have a serious conversation 50 years out. And I think that's what the people who are arguing that it could be a risk are arguing is that yeah. by the time that we realize it's a risk, our car's going so fast that it's already going over the cliff no matter how right. hard we hit the brakes. Right. There are two points. One is you have to think about it before because afterwards it's too late. And the other mm -hmm. is that in in the way that the people you know, on the danger side connected is just by pointing out the shape of an exponential curve, right? So the point is, we can't anticipate that far out. So let's assume the worst and think about how to be ready for that. And that's a totally legitimate conversation. It's, it's an essential conversation. So uh, um, it's yeah, good we, that, we, we, that we, put, we point that out and we wrestle with those issues. It is. I got two last questions for you, a controversial one and then an easy one. Before we wrap up, Will AI, in terms of simple automation, be net positive or net negative on jobs? In terms of simple automation, it'll so probably. I think car, it's going to be a car. net negative, probably. I mean, you just look at the number. I mean, just take transportation alone, which in many states here in the U.S. is the largest employer of of men in the workforce. Auto autonomous driving just wipes that out, and then that's just one sector. So I, I don't see how it's not a net negative. Not. I don't see how it could be anything other than a net loss of jobs. How do we provide that country as antisocial as we are? Well, and how little we're willing to confront it with serious conversation. It's gotten a little better, but I don't know how to understand how the last U.S. election was about immigration when the real problem is, you know, in terms of jobs is automation, <laughs> you know? So I don't know. I don't have the answer, but I think it's an immediate and urgent conversation. If you guys were wondering, I'm too young to run for president, but August isn't. <laughs> we got a, we got a chance there. I got one last question before you before you tell people where to find you and all the good stuff. And that is, if you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action, something to look into, a career to pursue, what would it be and why? Uh, for young people or anyone in general? Well, 
Let's do a young people one and then anyone in general. Well, I'm not so sure it'd be that different. Um, you know, I think in terms of making an impact and a difference and having the potential to make, you know, a good return on a, on a business, you know, food sciences is a really important and very doable sector to dive into. You know, we're looking at re- meat replacements are going to be radically important in terms of both health and environmental improvements. And that's totally doable. That's not like crazy speculative science that's happening now. And and there's so many opportunities. If you just look at some of the recent success stories in the food industry, the RX bars and Quest bars, these are just minor improvements and they were radically successful businesses. You can, by mainstreaming some of the more fringe um, health and nutrition food science, I think you could build some really good businesses right now. Uh, in general, the other thing that I I would love to do if I were starting earlier is go into software, but software to improve our habits because software right now is used largely to manipulate us and to make businesses that are super profitable and in the process creating negative habits. But there's no reason. In fact, software is beautifully designed and can be is entirely capable of enhancing and shaping our habits for the better. And I don't see enough of that. Like, I just think there's so much possibility to re- rewire sort of our, our instinctive behaviors through software with the right incentives. And so I would love to see more of that. And that's something that I wish I had the skills to develop. I would agree. I would say the path to hell is paved in good intentions. I can give you all the right incentives in the world. I can cut out your sugar. I can make you sleep eight hours by tying you to a bed. I can do all of these things. I think it always gets a little dangerous when we try to change people. And yet I think we may have to do that going forward because people have proven what they've wanted in a lot of ways. And it's not necessarily what they need. You got to give people the you choice, do, but they've got to pay. You got to pay for it. So then you need a business model that works. Yeah. But if you want to lose weight, if you want to have greater mental clarity, if you want to, these are outcomes worth paying for. They're not, it's not that hard of a sell if you can actually deliver. Fair point. Fair point. Where can people find you and learn more, August? Well, the, the Mind and Machine universe is all centered around the website, mindandmachine.io. From there, you can go to the YouTube channel, the podcast, and the newsletter. And uh, that's sort of the, the hub of my exploration of all these topics and ideas. And if you guys are checking this episode out, make sure to check out our one on biotech, genetics, human longevity, enhancement, and all the good stuff over at Mind and Machine. Or if you go to the show notes, then we'll have links and everything there. Right. Until yeah, next think- time, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I've just really enjoyed this. And I love doing collaborations because, you know, we both interviewed a lot of people and it's we have all this in fragments of information coming in. So it's nice to be able to sit down and do a debrief and sort of try to make some sense out of all of it. So thanks, Matt. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's fun. And if you guys like this, leave a comment on the blog or on YouTube. What should I have asked August? What did I screw up? What did August screw up. I don't think he screwed up too much. Hopefully I got more screw ups on this one. That means swinging for the fences, but it was a fun one. And thanks for coming on and doing this. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. A lot, well, when you're talking about speculative science, you know, you take your shot and you see what happens and you just have to be humble and keep an open mind. Yeah. Jordan missed the most shots. He just had the most game winners as well. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming on guys. Thanks for coming with us and share this with a friend. It's the most important thing that you can do for us. If you liked it, you want to give us a high five, a big hug, maybe like a butt grab or something. Share this with a friend so that we can help grow this and build a movement where people are actually thinking about the future and hopefully building a better one because of it. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards 
and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us, and if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message, and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.